1: This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com.
0: This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. And today I'm bringing you the second part of my conversation with stand-up comic and comedy actor David Cross. You might want to download the first part to get some context on this one. Um, But if you haven't done that, you can probably charge straight in. Keep listening for details of the exclusive extra content from David's CD, It's Not Funny, that he mentioned last week, that is now exclusively available via this podcast. It's it's sort of, you can think of it like a hidden track. Uh, If you remember, we also talked about David's early material, his anger and how it manifests in his comedy and his life. And now we're straight back into discussing offence and outrage. Here's David Cross. In It's Not Funny, when you're talking about Bush executing, in your words, retarded people, I mm-hmm. think that's, um, there's, that's a less, that seems to me from my Listening of American phrase, that seems that's a less an PC old,
2: phrase. Yes, that's a, that's an old, uh, um, that's, what I had an old bit about Bush electrocuting retarded people. Okay. That's from my stand-up, that's not in that thing, that's like old, 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 old. Like one of the first oh, things well, I when I, okay. you, you wouldn't have heard it, it's one of the first things... Okay. Where I started to shift into more of that stuff, in response to your question from earlier, it yeah. was an early, that the first Bush, mm-hmm. I think that was a reference to that, and that was a real thing where he did uh, execute people he knew that were were retarded in the state of Texas. Um, but anyway, go ahead.
0: So, because I've heard that bit, I thought that was on one of your, your CDs. It is. it is, but it's I'm a reference it, to another bit.
2: Yeah, there's there uh, because his. His father also did that as well. I understand, well. I understand.
0: So, but with, with things like that, and the line is, you know, every time uh, Bush executes a retarded person, an angel gets his wings. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. That's yeah. funny. So, uh, I'm going to have to check me out. <laughs> so with something like that, um, where that could cause outrage, one would imagine, in some audiences. Uh... Well, the, let, me, let me ask the question I was going to ask. How do you develop stuff like that when... Like there must be there must be a point at which you get
2: traction with some crowds and not with others. yeah, you just stand by it. If you believe in it, if that's I mean going back to to you referenced a couple times you know my fearlessness, um, which I don't see as fearlessness. it's just what I am and who I am and i would I would argue that other people where I don't have a filter. I think other people do, and that's cowardly, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm fearless. You know what I mean? In, okay. in a relative sense, everything being equal, I think they're cowardly more than I'm fearless, if that, if that makes sense. Um, uh, it's just, you know, that's a thing... Uh, I just don't have that thing in me that wants to please everybody, I guess. Yeah. You know, and uh, I I mean, I, I want to have a good set and I want people to like me, absolutely. And I want to I have a great set. But it's, I'm not going to not do a bit because I think it's going to upset some unseen person in the back who I don't know who the fuck they are, you know. Um, and
0: are you ever in environments when you have to decide to do a bit even though you know it's going to upset everybody?
2: Oh sure, yeah, yeah. But that's, uh, I get gleeful about that, you know, and and again, it's less so now. Um, a lot of this applies more to the first 10 years I was doing stand-up, uh, and there's, yeah, there's a certain amount of all right, get ready for this. This should be fun, you know, because I definitely want to do that bit because I like it. I know it's done well. I know other people like it, people I respect and trust, and and I've I've done it before on numerous occasions, and it works really well. I'm you just have to stand by your bit. You have to be you have to have conviction of the idea and the bit, and I do, you know, unless I'm just riffing something, and then and if I don't, then sometimes I'll apologize, and maybe even say like oh that was a bit much. That's not funny. But I mean, okay. I have jokes that involve rape. Yeah, uh, not not the <laughs> not the physical act. Um, I mean the physical act. But I don't. I they reference rape, and their they joke wouldn't exist if the word rape wasn't in it. Um, but I stand by the jokes, you know. And I've certainly what well, fucking whatever it was three months ago, four months ago, whatever it was. It was a while ago. It was the last last set I did. It was it was a a good four or five months ago. But I was in Brooklyn. And I did this joke that I really like. I did it the other night. Um, You were at Happy Monday. Yes, I was, yeah. Obviously, that's how this. All right. Um, The thing about uh, the guy on trial for date rape. Yes. Um, So I started that joke, and then there was a woman, of course. It's probably going to happen once every three, four times. um, You know, who said, uh, you know, go you know, why don't you go home, or something like that, or Mm. I can't remember what it was. It was like, stop, that's not funny, it's a rape. Like, there are plenty of people who think you can't possibly make a funny joke once the word rape or the concept of rape is is involved, and I think that's absurd, and, and, uh, um, again, demonstrably, I mean, comedy's subjective, but demonstrably untrue. And, uh, yeah, so...
0: So, well, let, just to pursue that then, you, so uh, there's a difference between not caring about pleasing people and not caring about
2: offending people, and somewhere along a that line huge is sort dif- of... A huge difference. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and again, I don't... I want to please people, I just won't alter my stuff to please people. I mean, I will, I will comment on it, and I will try to win an audience back, and I'll but I'll just do it in varying degrees. I'm not going to abandon my material. I may present it a different way. I may keep trying. One thing I've always done ever since I started was comment on the situation. It's never bothered me to go, "Wow, this isn't working." Mm. Um, you know, let's see, let's see how we can make this work. I'm not a bad guy. You know, I understand you didn't like that bit, and and just t- talk to them as human beings, and hopefully they see you as a human being. But yeah, there's a there's a huge difference between not, uh, you know, not caring about uh, pleasing people and not caring about offending them. I, I t- completely don't give a shit about offending people. Never have ever. Is
0: there is there an element by which you enjoy offending people? Yes. And what's that about? What, what's, if, you're, if you're going not going out of your way, but making it your way to offend people. Well,
2: are they offended by the words? Are they offended by the concept? Are, are they offended by me? Are they offended by me saying those words? Are they offend? I mean, there's so many ways to offend somebody. And most of the ways that people get offended, most of the ways they react when they're offended, are it's a heightened drama. It's a form of narcissism. And uh, it's anti-intellectual sometimes. Uh, the, the act of taking offense, you mean?
0: Is, well, is to not what I'm talking yeah, about.
2: okay. What I'm talking about. Like, you know, uh, the, the, the idea that, uh, you know, I, I say something about uh, Orthodox Jews and people get offended, um, but they're offended for weird reasons. Um, and when I get offended, I get offended at different things. And, uh, and the stuff, the, mostly like a comedian saying, making a joke about, you know, uh, I, I get, I guess I get offended in a, in a purist's way, you know, where like that's a, that anti-Arab joke makes no sense, you know, yeah, it's okay. not about yeah. it being anti-Arab, but, uh, uh. I get a, a offended at just like easy shock stuff and um and i, I just it just't you know uh I guess ultimately also you know like well, I didn't hurt anybody with that let's move on that was uh mm. that was a thought that was a thought I put out there it took about twenty thirty seconds maybe okay let's move on uh, but if for what I talk about my subject matter, whether it's um you know, politics or religion—I I don't give a shit about offending somebody who, you know, because they're Jewish or Christian or Muslim or atheist or whatever. I, I don't—I don't care.
0: But in in the context of the two examples that we've talked about, you've, on the one hand, there's there's the um, uh, the Bush capital punishment kind of Look issue. At these notes, yeah, I know, man. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> in the in the context, of those two examples. There's on on the one hand, there's the Bush. Capital punishment thing, which yeah. one might say is deserving of a joke because that's mm-hmm. it's an important point,
2: well, you would say okay uh, sure you're but there are plenty of people who wouldn't say
0: okay, yeah, no, They'd be yeah. By okay, that. so even you know, bearing that in mind yeah that's and then, on, and then on the other hand there's the the joke about date rapists which i because we're talking about it. can you just mm-hmm. tell us what what that in in brief what that joke is no which is the... uh,
2: <laughs> it it, will, it won't translate if I tell it
0: okay, you know. Okay, I just would like people to be able to understand there's, there's this. There's
2: performance involved, and, and I don't <laughs> want to do it.
0: Um. But okay, but, but it's fair to say that that joke is, or is it fair to say that that joke is, that's kind of like a riff on an idea about, about the, a, a date rapist defending himself in court. And that maybe, does that have less kind of societal value? To the one about Bush executing people with learning difficulties. I don't care.
2: I don't care. I'm I'm up there. I mean, unless we're talking about a, a you know, doing thirty minutes in uh, in New Cross. I, I when I'm if we're talking about the work that I'm putting out there for everybody, you know, mm-hmm. like the the CDs, the the specials and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I don't care regardless. But. Uh, I, I don't care about social value. There, some jokes have zero; they have less than uh, zero social value. I don't, I'm not up there for an hour and a half. Everything has to be about social value. That'd be boring to me. I'm not that good at that. I'm not. Uh, I'm not Bill Hicks. You know, I, I don't. I have things that I'm passionate about, and and um, and uh, and clearly, as 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 I as my body of work increases. Uh, you can point to some stuff and go, well look at that you 've got three hours on religion, you know, mm-hmm. so clearly that's but you know in the in a, in a show if i 'm doing an hour and a half two hours whatever i mean that's religion is what twenty five thirty percent of my maybe maybe you know even peripherally uh, part of my set i mean there 's a lot of stuff and um i i've never nor do I want to try to make every second have social value
0: no but what what i mean is in terms of whether or not someone gets offended i might look at it and go well it's okay for people to be offended by the idea that the state is killing people with learning difficulties because it's that's that's a thing that's worth talking about but doing a a sort of a i don't know is it a glib joke about a date rapist but then if someone gets offended at that i sort of do you see see what i mean in terms of the
2: the... yeah but the the I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't, uh, I, well, I guess it comes back around to, I don't care. I don't care to engage in a, um, although I'm doing exactly that, a debate <laughs> about, um, uh, you know, what is, what has more, uh, what has more leeway in its uh, offensive, you know, quantitative offensive qualities and what's okay and what's not okay. I just don't care. It's a, uh, specifically, the, the date rapist on trial joke is just a joke. I, here's here's a joke we can talk about, because let's forget the date rape thing. Here's something that I, I did in the last special. It's easy. We'll talk about this. Um, I got... Uh, uh, I love my wife very much. Uh, I'm really not selling this joke very <laughs> well. I love my wife very much. Uh, I, I love her so much I got her two vibrators. Um, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing my own, own joke. It was in the last special, but... Um, you know, I got her two vibrators, you know, one for home and one for her to take with her, you know, in case she's raped. Uh, and that's, it's one of those, ooh, jokes, but it's, it's, uh, it's certainly one that some people didn't think was funny and that's fine. You know, you should never, ever, ever debate intellectually like we're doing, whether a joke or comedy is funny. I have my idea, and I can articulate why I don't think it's funny, but I can't make it funny to you. That sure. It is what it is. Part of it is the context. If I wrote that down and put it as a submission in The New Yorker, not funny. If a guy is saying it in the context of the middle of a joke as a throwaway thing, kind of a little bit funnier. Um, but let's talk about that, because that's, uh, that's one that people are like, ooh, mm. But I don't care. It's just a dumb. No, nobody really got raped. I'm not condoning it. I'm not advocating it.
0: Do you, uh, Do you think? I mean, I mean, this isn't. I don't know how much time we should spend on this, but do you think that there it's your is? Podcast. Do you think that there is a validity in uh, people's anger at rape jokes? Because one, one of the one of the arguments I hear against it depends people, on the
2: joke. If it's if it's a well crafted joke, then no. And if it's a just shock value thing where it's 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 and it's almost kind of violent and misogynistic, then sure, yeah. And that's just me. That's my opinion. I still it, there's no arbiter. It is what it is. And uh, you know, there's no ultimate judge who's saying hey, you can't you can't you know I can't send this to Oxford and have it you know sent around and uh, studied and then they come back with a specific. Well actually it's a 61% but <laughs> yeah. you know I mean it's subjective. So is there anything that you that you would find offensive that you wouldn't There's plenty joke I about? find offensive. Um oh subject matter? Yeah,
0: subject matter in terms of
2: in terms I think of, when there are, are real people who are uh innocent victims I I those jokes are tough. They may be funny but Specific they're, people,
0: you mean, rather than yeah, yeah, yeah. Rape like as a concept, there's a thing that yes. happens. I understand.
2: No, that bothers me when when they're you know, when people make jokes like, uh, like when an athlete gets away, like the Ray Rice thing, and his... well, I guess she came back to him, so it's less. But uh, I don't even know if anybody will get that reference, American sports guy. But um, you know, when somebody uh, 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 somebody's accused of rape, usually like a um, you know somebody connected and wealthy, a celebrity, an athlete, a politician, or somebody. And and uh, and this might be more specific to America, where we uh we, we're in an ugly period right now, a lot because of the right wing and Fox News, and they blame the victim first. It's always about um, you put it through the filter. Well, did she deserve it? What did you know? And there's a there's a person, and this news has just come out saying last... 72 hours and people make jokes a lot of shock jocks on the radio make jokes about this person who is innocent never asked for this so, you know this, this this infamy never asked for any of it and potentially could have been raped by a guy who's going to get away with it and I and people make jokes about you know fill in the blank whoever that girl or woman was I find those those jokes offensive Things like that, or things where there is an innocent victim who did nothing to merit um, uh, uh, this awful, harsh national kind of making fun of them. Uh, though, when it's a real person, that that bothers me.
0: Um, have you ever done that in the past? Not necessarily about rape victims, say, but have you have you zeroed in on a specific individual and then and then?
2: Ever um, had a situation
0: no. where you've had to kind of re- change your thinking on it or retract, it? like you've met the person or you've you've uh, hurt someone that, that's actually been been no, tangible? Because ye- I, I, the reason I ask is oh, that part of the reason why I feel maybe less free than I could be on stage to say whatever I want is part of it is a fear of hurting someone. Part of it is a, is wanting to please people and, and trying right. to keep a check on that as a as a you know as a level. And, and part of it is not wanting to injure someone,
2: to right. hurt another person.
0: And is that something that you don't, that doesn't come
2: up? No, as a, a, there, are, uh, there are numerous jokes. I make, I make jokes about my family, have for years. Um, but there are numerous jokes I've thought of that I don't do because it would hurt their feelings uh, as individuals. You know, my mom or one of my two sisters. I just don't do them. You know, and I've thought about it. Maybe something I'll tell my wife or somebody who knows everybody, and it's a funny joke. But this is going to hurt their feelings, and I don't do that. And that's about it. Um, I don't think I, I offhand, I, I don't make fun of somebody who doesn't kind of quote. Unquote, deserve it, you know, like Kim Kardashian, Paris Hilton, people who I find reprehensible and are rewarded for their disgusting, uh, amoral, antisocial, terrible behavior. Mm. Um, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem making fun of Kanye West. Uh, uh, and a lot of people invite that kind of thing, that's fine. And uh, um, I, I think anybody who puts themselves out there, uh, in a very calculated way, uh, puts themselves out there, and, and uh, because they want to be famous, so they want, they they feel they deserve it. They're entitled, and then yeah, you can make fun of them. But I, I really don't make fun of that many people outside of that, except for maybe. Uh, I'm trying to think of specific people. The Pope, he's a big mm-hmm. boy; You can take it. <laughs>
0: So thank you for all your feedback on the first episode of this conversation. Uh, David is going to talk in a moment about his years spent as a road act. Uh, that's a, a comic that buzzes up and down the country on planes and buses and cars um, and uh, and what that experience gave him. Now, I, I particularly mention that because uh, I achieved a career first. <laughs> I don't know if achieved is the right word. Um, but uh, something happened. I did something that I've never done in 20 years of being a performer. I I conflate my 10 years as a street performer with my 10 years as a comic in that for reasons that will become clear. Um, I turned down a gig because I considered it unplayable. I've never done that before. I'm absolutely used to turning up and just hacking my way through any old shit set of circumstances. I'm going to tweet a picture of it, actually, so you can see um, the uh, the specific circumstances of this gig. Um, but I turned up as part of the Leamington Spa Comedy Festival, the otherwise brilliant, I should say, Leamington Spa Comedy Festival, which is very close to my heart because uh, I grew up in Leamington Spa, um, which is a, a little town in the West Midlands. And uh, I mean, it was lovely. I really enjoyed. I did the the big final show there. I did a comedy for kids show there. I emceed a, a new act night with some great new acts, um, including Jack Heal, who I'd never seen before. He was absolutely superb. So looking out for him. Anyway, that's not the story. The point is that I uh, I did this big finale show and I was able to do incredibly local material of the way that I, I often can't do because I'm... Um, uh, because I'm from somewhere really tedious. Uh, Levington Spa, I, I think the problem with Levington, much as I love it, the problem with it from the perspective of a comic is that it doesn't have a cultural identity. People in Levington don't know what they are. There seems to me, in terms of the audience today, there's very little sense of cultural sort of cohesion because they're not, you know, the, you know, the extreme examples would be people like Glaswegians or Scousers or even Bristolians are aware that there is a cultural stereotype about Bristolians. Um, But there's no stereotype about Levingtonians, if that's even what they're called. Um, They are, um, they're just sort of, they're not, I suppose people think they're a bit posh. They're not specific, they, we, aren't aren't really that posh. So there's not a lot for a kind of an, an incoming comic to work with besides sort of, hey, you're a bit posh all the rest of it, I was able to do some ferociously uh, uh, local material about how they've just had a wagon mummers built there. And I remember the days when you could turn left off the parade, which absolutely killed. So that was uh, (laughs) not the sort of material I could do in literally any other town. Um... But that had all gone very well. The Leamington Spa Comedy Festival was fantastic. And then, uh, and then what happened was uh, I went to do a little sort of additional bolt-on gig at the Leamington Spa Irish Club. Uh, and OK, l- the comics amongst you will instantly spot all the danger signs. Let's see if non-comedians uh, can tell Um, when I first started to worry. So I got the email and uh, I'm going to go on and do 20 minutes in between a band. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be the first first red flag. Um, So there's a band on, then they're going to stop and presumably already my mind's racing and I'm thinking, okay, what's going to happen here is someone's going to shuffle on stage and say... um, uh, so sorry to stop all the music you've been enjoying. Here's a comedian you've never heard of. So I thought, OK, this that's, that's, I've, I've played worse situations. I've played weddings where they're all looking at you going, why are you doing jokes about yourself and not about the bride and groom? I, I've been in all sorts of horrific, borderline, unplayable situations. I turned up at the gig. I was met by a, a very uh, chipper-looking guy in his early forties, I would say, um, who was uh, who seemed excited to see the young man from London town, as far as he knew, in a blazer, uh, turning up ready to be thrown to the wolves. I then went round the corner, looked at the venue itself, which was a dance floor with people dancing on it, and about ten. Uh, silver tops, (laughs) very elderly people, uh, men and women, uh, ten down one side of a long hall, ten down the other side of this hall, and then at the end uh, bathed in deep blue and green light, as I remember, not actual light, sort of atmosphere, and was a stage with uh, a band uh, doing some lovely Irish folk music as three or four people slowly danced in the middle of the room. And I have to say, I looked at it, and dear reader, dear listener, I thought, no, no. No, this isn't going to work. I can go up there and die on my ass for 20 minutes as, as hard as the next guy, as bravely as the next guy. But there is no point. So I'm not going to do it. And uh, I didn't, I didn't stamp my foot. I spoke to the, uh, the producer. I texted the producer of the festival a, a picture of the gig. And, uh, and he, t- and to be fair... I think he texted me back. I didn't get it until five minutes later, but he said, you're not doing this. <laughs> Call me. But uh, by that point, it had already been decided. Um, and what was funny was the guys that were running the the the, the club there or the, uh, you know, whatever it is, there's sort a of music night. They were very up for me doing it. And I could tell they, I mean, they started to appeal to... I don't know what, my my sense of identity as a comic, they started going, um, in a very kind of uh, predictable way, they started saying, uh, oh, well, uh, if you were any kind of comic, you'd do it. And do you know what? Do you know what? Having done this for 20 years, I was able to look them in the eye and say, I'm not going to buy that because I've done this for long enough to know that I don't have to do this. (laughs) I don't have to do this. I will do a gig if you provide me a gig, but this is not a gig. And uh, I, I suppose I'm most proud of that—that that I managed to um, stand there in the face of them calling into question whether I, you know, call yourself a comedian. Uh, I was able to stand there in the face of that and say, "Do you know what? That I am enough of a comedian that that absolutely washes over me." I ain't doing it. And I got in my car and it was all very amicably done. But uh, I, I, I got in my car and I drove home and I rang my friend Matt, who is a, a variety and street performer. Uh, and he loves to hear tales of how awful the comedy industry is, the stand-up industry is in uh, in relation to, to his life and my former life. Um, in that, you know, there's, I think there's far more travel and it's far more lonely and in some cases poorly paid. But uh, there's nothing performers like more than hearing... Uh, about hideous situations. So I rang him and I told him all about it and he laughed at me in a very, very supportive way. Um, so what I'd take from that is, uh, is that it's always good to ring people. I don't do that enough on the way home on long drives. Sometimes I'll ring comedian friends of mine who are also on long drives and have really good conversations. And there's something, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, so in fact, if you're driving late at night right now, put the show on pause and just call up. If you've got a hands-free set, do it legally, Um, put the show on pause and call up a friend and tell them to download this podcast and then go to my website and pay for the fucking thing. It's the perfect conversation starter. Um, So thanks for listening to that. Here is my one minute money pitch. Uh, Here we go. Remember the, the money pitches are all in one minute. Let's see if we can pull this one off and then we'll get back to David. Here goes. Today's show is brought to you by me and sponsored by no one. If you're enjoying the podcast, it's up to you to pay for it so it stays alive and I can keep on talking to more exciting guests. I know you guys like to support it, and thanks to everybody that has so far. I suspect the reason why you plan to go to comedianscomedian.com, click on the PayPal button and then select £20 or a pound a show and donate, but you haven't got round to it yet is because you're driving or running or making angry love while you listen. And that means by the time you get to be in front of your laptop, you've forgotten about your desire uh, to donate to the show. Totally understandable. Here's my solution. I want you now to imagine, focus in your mind, the indent button, the paragraph indentation button, that little button on the top left that shoves your cursor forward about a centimetre. And probably if you're a geek, it does something like it It nudges the highlighted areas of the next one. I've no idea. It's a great little button. It pushes things forward. Imagine that button, right? Imagine my voice telling you to imagine the button. The next time you encounter that button at your keyboard, you're doing a letter or something, you're, about to th- you're just about to press it, you're going to stop and think, oh yes, I must donate to the podcast now that I'm online. One minute and two seconds. That wasn't bad. So straight back into David. You'll remember from the first episode of this interview that David has given me an exclusive. If you're a fan of his stand-up, which I, I hope you are or will be soon, you'll know that one of his CDs from 2014, uh, sorry, 2004, uh, was called It's Not Funny. And it's just superb. It's a brilliant, brilliant album. I, I, it's, like I said before, it, it's on shuffle constantly in my car. It's always coming up. And I, I just love his work. Um, Track titles uh, on the album, as we're about to talk about on this show, uh, they mock hack comic approaches, such as um, one of the tracks is called My Immigrant Mom Talks Funny. One of them is called Pandering to the Locals. Another is called Weathermen Have Become, for the Most Part, Obsolete. And the final track is called... When all is said and done, I'm lonely and miserable and barely able to mask my contempt for the audience as I trot out the same sorry act I've been doing since the mid-80s. He's just great. <laughs> so, David, that, that isn't the final track. You see, it is the final track on the album, but it shouldn't be because David has given me an eight-minute MP3 clip of the alternate ending to this CD that his record company at the time wouldn't let him release. So I'm going to release the clip uh, as its own little eight-minute podcast. If you've subscribed to this show, you should receive it automatically in your pod of choice. Uh, It'll download as this one did. Um, And if you're listening on SoundCloud, then you can find it in the usual place via comedianscomedian.com. That is that. Let's get back to David as we discuss his track titles.
1: Hold up.
0: in one of the things i loved about uh, your albums a couple of them um are the track titles oh, which yeah. are um, that might be something you've been asked a lot about before i mean it really yeah. really made me laugh the, the the title the titles of the tracks on your album rather than be the subject you're talking about are kind of very very brilliantly written as well i should add um, kind of cliched tropes yes, of stand-up. Exactly. So, you know, track number nine, if baseballs had AIDS on them, or whatever yeah. it is, you know. Yeah. And those really, really made me laugh. Um, were they...
2: I, I, I have to tell you, I did... I I, I didn't want to waste an opportunity. So any time I could find a place to put humor, I did. I yeah. did that in the... I did that for the first two CDs. In the, and Bigger and Blacker does not have that. Yes. Because... Uh, I found over the years, like trying, I would see the, I would have to reference it or yeah. somebody would reference it and I would have no fucking clue what they were talking about. I couldn't Hoist answer their question. <laughs> yes. I couldn't answer their question. Yeah. I didn't know what they were talking about. On I this would have section to... that
0: says my immigrant mom talks funny, <laughs> yeah. you'd like there isn't, that no such bit exists. Well, like
2: that, that great bit, you know, it's uh, and they would know it because they've looked at it and I wouldn't be able to engage at all and then it would be five minutes like, what, wait, what? Um, have to Google it and look it up. Yeah. And, uh, so when I was doing the track listings for that, I was like, "All right, fuck that! I, this is such a <laughs> such a pain in the ass. I can't. I'm not gonna do it anymore." But the
0: I was going to ask, did you ever get because those are, because that's mocking some of the tropes of stand up comedy? Do you what do you feel you have a kind of a place within the stand up comedy community, either now or when you were more gigging in the in the clubs? And do you feel like is that the sort of behaviour that could piss off those kind of Comics oh, that do that sort again, of material. I don't
2: give a shit. I don't care. They can be upset. I, nobody said anything to me. I I doubt they ever would. But, um, uh, but yeah, just uh, I mean that's all from you know spending whatever it was however many years on the road and doing club stuff. I mean ten years, I think, roughly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of going all over America. You know, and you'd leave your you know, intellectual, culturally refined neck of the woods, whether it was in Boston or New York, and you'd travel, you didn't have to travel that far, um, or even Atlanta, just travel outside of Atlanta, and it's just dumb,
0: mm.
2: you know, people laughing at easier, simpler stuff. So it was that, it was based on, you know, Spe-
0: Speaking as someone who myself is doing a fair amount of road comedy at the moment, did that stuff pay off? Do you look back on it and go, "Well, that's where I learned my trade," or do you look back and go, "Ah, oh, a lot of that was effectively
2: pointless"? Um, no, I think it. I don't know where I'd be without it. Actually, I think it, it, uh, it enabled me. It goes back to what I was saying along when we first started about. Uh, I was because of the boom, and I had to be in Boston, which was a, you know, kind of a, a big epicenter of that boom and I happened to be there at that exact moment. I got to, I got all that stage work, and it it allowed me to, because as I said, I you don't you, you don't want to bomb; you want to do well. Um, it it taught me to be in front of a crowd, a crowd that didn't necessarily uh, want to hear what I happened to have ready for them. If my set was, you know, fifteen minutes or thirty minutes. I learned how to be on stage for 30 minutes saying things that people might not necessarily want to hear. And that was invaluable.
0: And what kind of, if you could distill those lessons down, what, what kind of lessons were they that you, could, that you could give to someone now who might be listening to this, who's a comic, who feels that they've got stuff to say and it isn't going down the way they want it
2: to, but they feel it's, it's genuine? Is there, is there some kind of... Well, I can tell you what worked for me uh, and And it did have a hundred percent success rate uh, not even ninety or eighty or seventy five percent but what would work was humanizing yourself and don't not as a victim or being somebody to be pitied, but this this sense of I'm a guy that you might like if I wasn't on stage saying this thing that you didn't like to hear. There's a lot of that kind of you have to. See the audience as an audience, and not—you know—that they're comprised of individuals. But an audience as a thing is much different than the—the—the—the the, the, uh, the parts that it's made up of. You know, they they, they become this—it's—it's it's weird, and I don't know that I'm explaining myself very well. But the—the the audience is a—is a—is a thing. It's not that lady there with the arms crossed, and it's not that guy back there laughing in the back. It's a, it's a big breathing, living thing that uh, will be different every time. You're always going to be the same. You're always going to be the same. That audience is going to be different, and you have to figure out... I'm not, I'm not giving you constructive advice here because I, I, there aren't tricks and you know six things you can do but you have to figure out how to talk to the audience and and make them understand that they're also individuals and that you're an individual. And it's tricky and it doesn't always work, but they will if you're not just out there trying too hard and shouting at them and you know, and I've certainly made the mistake of probably too quickly going to the, well, fuck you, I'm just going to do what I want to do kind Mm -hmm. of attitude. You know, that was a a lesson I learned. And it's, I suppose that would be my advice. Although I can't tell you exactly how to do it because I don't know myself. It just becomes intuitive after a, a while.
0: But recognizing, so there's two things there. Recognizing and talking to the audience as an audience and as individuals mm-hmm. and also letting them know that you said about humanizing yourself about yeah. making them realize that you are just one of them.
2: Yes, without being a victim, you know, without, without making them feel sorry for you, you want them to understand like as an audience there's that, there's that kind of like, show, me, especially fucking here, Jesus Christ uh, you know, what do you got? Like prove yourself.
0: <sighs> Is that something you find typical of uh, British?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, yeah, it's been my case most I mean, uh, oops, excuse me, uh, Happy Mondays was great, um, but I think a lot of people knew who I was, and there was, like, uh, but I've done plenty of gigs here where it's, they real it really is, like, prove yourself to me, mm. and I would say the highs are higher here, but the lows are lower, Okay. you know, um, and, uh, but I kind of like it, it's a challenge, you know?
0: If you were to... And I, I want to move on to is the acting stuff as well um, in a moment, but if you were to... How,
2: how, long, how long is this podcast? <laughs> I don't know. This,
0: I'm going to keep going as long as you can until you go, okay, what the fuck? We're going to leave will, now. Com-
2: this will comfortably take you from London up to Edinburgh is, you choose man, this, to drive.
0: That's where everyone will be doing it. Um, well, I'll, I've got two main questions about the acting stuff, but I wanted yeah. to, to round off the, the stuff on your stand-up. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, um, if you were to review yourself, what kind of Elements do you th- no take the word review out of it because I don't we don't even think about critics but in what elements of stand up do you think I wish I was better at, at that bit or oh I,
2: I tell you exactly I wish I wish I was um, a better I wish I had the the wherewithal the desire the uh, skill to write jokes I think I, I think I'd be really great if I could write if I sat down and did what so many people do like they write jokes out they craft them out and I write so many things I mean that's I consider myself a writer way more than I do an actor or producer uh, or stand up I mean I write I write, I write, I write I write lots of shows and scripts and sketches and things And um, but I just don't have uh, maybe i need to go to a hypnotist or something i don't have the ability to sit down and write jokes and or take pre-existing jokes or bits cuz i'll i'll take my sets and then i'll uh, you know i'll i'll transpose them and um is that the right word no. Transcript. transcribe transcribe them transcribe. and uh yeah. and and then try to go okay here's the essence of this joke but the way that i attack and work on other projects I work on, which are, you know, stories with a beginning, middle, and end, or a sketch that has a beginning, middle, and end, I just don't, uh, I I just can't do it, and I wish I could, it's a, it's a, a fault of mine, and I wish I would prepare more, um, I think that's an old shitty habit I have from, uh, being able to justify, not doing well by going well. I I didn't prepare. That's why it's a it's stupid. It makes no sense. But um, uh, but yeah, I wish I was a better joke writer. You know, and and had the um responsibility that just could sit down and write. I just can't. I just sit and look, stare, and I can't. I try to craft a joke, and I can't do it. And a lot of it comes on stage, and I have to hope that oh i hope this is a good set <laughs> you know, that's where all my material comes from <laughs> okay
0: you know? so you do all of your writing on stage you have it you have a note you have a thought you yeah, take it on stage yeah. you just say it normally and then you build you build on yeah that. i don't, yeah, I don't yeah.
2: mean to imply that you know when you're hearing my cds that that's me riffing No, that's sure. been that's been a hundred sets of like taping myself going oh that because i tend to um i will i really digress it's a huge problem I have where I will just, um, the the other night was a perfect example. There are bits I never finished. I started one Mm -hmm. idea where I I know what the ending is and it's great, but we never got to it. I introduced the idea. Then I got sidetracked by my brain. Not in a good way. I mean, a lot of people like, you know, Robin Williams is a genius. Like some of that stuff, like wait a minute. that was, you know, and I have a a problem with, uh, I, I do that. I err on that side too much. Um, now when again when you see these uh sets like the 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 stuff you're you know the the CDs and DVDs and the specials that's after I I got a set ready and I'll and I will take all the stuff that I've accumulated and I'll try to you know put a set together and what the right order is and I'll do and I you know I'll just go to uh UCB Theater in New York or LA and you know do like five nights where it's free and i pay for the room and you come down and and he, the idea is you're going to see bits i you've probably seen before but i'm getting this ready and uh and then you go out on the road and then that's the set mm. and i certainly riff within it but it takes mm. a while to get that thing ready and all the stuff that goes into getting that ready is just fucking around for better or worse
0: and do you enjoy that process, or does it feel like you're trying to scale a mountain to get it to get it all there to get it there and finished
2: um well, does it feel like work l- sometimes it does, but luckily i don't i'm not contractually obligated to do anything i I feel the only the only um the only thing that dictates any of that stuff is my schedule like I look at my schedule and i go man i'm not busy until January That's uh, I'm never going to get a uh, hour and a half set ready you know uh, tour ready by then maybe I'll work on some other stuff but I know that I'm going to be working pretty much through August of next year so then I go well if I do tour it's going to be a ways off so that gives me nine months to fuck around so it doesn't feel like work, and then when I go, okay, I've got to do a tour. That's when it's work, but okay. in a good way, not not yeah. bad work, but you know.
0: Does, is the deadline helpful ever? That you go always.
2: Any, I, I'm I will fuck around, uh, and not fuck around like having fun. Fuck around, but just procrastinate and uh, not focus. Um, and, and having a deadline in anything I do is always helpful. And I actually work well with a deadline. I do pretty, pretty well under pressure, and I need it.
0: Um, I wanted to ask about um, the given the individuality of your voice as a stand-up. When you and Bob Odenkirk were writing Mr. Show, did you always did your did you have the same line of attack on a subject? Did you do you come from a similar kind of political standpoint or a similar?
2: appreciation um, of the world
0: was it? were you working in tandem or kind of struggling over bit
2: no very much in tandem uh, but we are very different we have different comic sensibilities um, it really is uh, that pairing has been you know because you can, you can listen to Bob stand up or, or read his writing listen to my stand up read my writing and uh, we're both very different But what we create together is just the 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 simple, and this really doesn't do it justice. But the simple, simplistic, I should say, way to uh, look at it is, he's very much uh, he's a really good uh, joke joke writer and funny scene idea, uh, person. And I come in, I come at it with a story element. Like, uh, uh, one of the great things about Mr. Show, I think, is that, you know, our sketches kind of had a, they felt like they had a bit of a travel to them. It wasn't just the same, you know, it wasn't the same idea over and over again, you know. Uh, And, uh, and you know, he has more structure. He has more classic sketch structure to his, um, to his stuff and mine, kind of veer out in the ridiculous craziness. And
0: did that tend to come from you? That aesthetic of characters wandering out and into the next one was that more you than him?
2: Uh, I don't know. We were. I would. I think we both. Uh, uh, I think that would have been the two. I don't know that it was one person who said I it. Thought- I, I did. I had a sketch group in um, Boston where we would do that stuff, but that had already been done by Letterman, and we were both highly, highly, heavily, uh, tuned to a ridiculous amount, uh, influenced by Monty Python. Yeah. It informed everything. Sure. And uh, I think that was a natural... I, I think it was just two of us, uh, you know, veered that way anyway, so it, it makes total sense. Uh, but it wasn't that... I don't think I can't imagine that one person brought it up. one person was obstinate. It just seems like so natural to what we're doing. We had a stage show before we did the t v show okay we'd do we would get together and take our our sketches uh i mean going back to the the original origin, there was a very uh creative community of like minded people in l a um uh, some people you know, some people you wouldn't, but we would, we got this space, or this one manager, Dave Rath, got this space behind a disco, an unused disco on Hollywood Boulevard, and we'd basically make these shows with ourselves, for ourselves, yeah. and, uh, you know, there are probably 120 people, you know, upstairs, maybe not even, but we'd put these shows together, and uh, um, it was a creative outlet for all of us, and Bob was putting a show together, and and we had riffed some stuff at a at a party at a mutual friend's, and we were like, oh, that would be a great sketch. And we started, we got together to write sketches, and then I had a sketch show the following week. You know, it was my night, you know, and I had a bunch of stuff, and Bob and I wrote like two things for that piece, and in both of our individual shows, the stuff we did together was just like you knew it immediately it was magic it was so far ahead of the rest of the stuff in his show and the rest of the stuff in my show and we were like we really should i mean when we wrote it was effortless and per, i mean it just went in the exact right place and so then we started writing shows together and uh um you know they they fairly quickly because we were both very respected in the underground there and mm. and you know when the idea that we were doing the show together people there was a lot of buzz on it and when people started coming and and you know eventually it became mr show but uh, it really is such a, a great marriage of two different sensibilities that he makes my stuff better, I make his stuff better, and it's a a seamless blend i mean i i can I can look at sketches and go, Bob wrote that that was my idea that's you know. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And, uh, but I think the 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 whole you know is it's you know it's good. It's it's in that I mean to be a bit pompous. It's in that Lennon McCartney way of you know Lennon was very much his guy, McCartney was his guy. Very different, but the stuff they made together like was great. You know. So.
0: Did you um. At the end of that process, at the end of when you stopped working together, I know you, you did like a reunion thing a couple of years ago, did you, or recently? Yeah, we
2: just did uh, last... Um... Oh gosh, was it that long ago? It was... Uh... What did we do? Um... Yeah, not like six months ago I think we had a oh, book out, okay. so we did a little mini tour. Uh...
0: At, the, at the end of the original series, was it scary at all to, to finish working with someone, having an effortless relationship, and going back to... Doing solo
2: projects. No, I uh, it was not at all. I was I was um, uh, you know sad to see it go and sad to see it end. But I was very 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 much itching to get out of LA. I did. I moved to mm. New York as soon as I could. We did this movie together. Uh, it was based on a Mister Show thing and with some of the other writers. And then as soon as that was done, uh, I moved to New York. And i have been wanting to move to New York since I moved to L.A. My joke was, because I moved to L.A. from Boston, it was like, I'm moving to L.A. so I can make enough money to move away from L.A. and hopefully never go back. But I um, ended up marrying a girl born and raised in Santa Monica, so uh, there's that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, was, I was very anxious to move on. And to to, to um, in my own like personal development, because shut up you fucking baby came uh, as a direct result of moving to New York, and uh, and that was that was me. That was uh, <clears throat> you know I uh, that was very much me and my experience removed from L.A. If I if if I had not moved from L.A. that CD would not have been like that and that I, I perhaps it wouldn't have resonated and had the, it had the visceral quality it did mm. um, and, and I, I think it was one of the more important things I've done, I'd say I, one of the five most important things I did for my creative and personal development was to move out of LA and move to New York
0: And was that, that was the CD where you talked about the aftermath of 9-11?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was talking about it almost immediately after the first. Uh, the first person I I saw talk about it, and um, it was really amazing. It was Mark uh, Marin and it was about a week and a half later, maybe, and he said to the audience, and it was raw. I mean, I I, I you know. You can see things on your TV, but uh, it was a it was a, a very raw, crazy time. And I lived downtown, and uh, you know they had the they had a demilitarized zone basically on 14th Street, and they had uh, um, tanks and fucking the army was there, and you couldn't you had to bring uh, proof of residency mm. in order to get back if you went uptown to get back in, and and then it was really empty. It was a very strange, surreal. Uh, and look, it's not Gaza, it's not fucking, you know, half of the planet, and and I, I say this knowing that it's relative, but it was a crazy, weird, surreal, awful thing. And uh, I think part of why that, uh, that CD resonates with people and why it was successful um, is because it came out so quickly after that, in relative terms, as, as mm-hmm. much as you can turn around a... Package CD, but, you know, people didn't know what to do, what to talk about, and, and uh, the stand-ups wanted to talk. I mean, most of them were, like, itching. And there was a show, again, it was, like, ten days later, maybe, and uh, and Mark went up and he said, he asked the audience, is it okay to talk about 9-11 yet? And he didn't mean it as a joke. It was not mm-hmm. meant at all to be a punchline. He really wanted to know if he could talk about it, and the collective like, please, yes, Mm. you know, and, and he proceeded to, and it wasn't that funny, but it was, it was, it was, uh, it definitely inspired myself, and I think a number of other people there, like, because, just like, we're clamoring to talk about it, and, uh, and I just remember that, how, how smart that was, you know, him asking the audience, is, is it cool, like being sensitive to people's yeah. feelings about it. Like, is it cool? And then the the response was just so uh, uh, emotive, and and it was like they it just exhaling all this tension of the last week, and just like, please, somebody yeah. talk about it. That's
0: like a distillation of of what's great about stand-up that you could easily pontificate and go oh it's a pressure valve for society and stuff but you don't you know that's so much talk until you get a situation like that where presumably people go nope that's it happening in action that's that's exactly please please talk about
2: it yeah they they, everybody was you know they didn't say the word please so much it's just you could just yeah as collectively as an audience just this group of people like desperate you know, did you
0: did you have to be more careful in your material about that because you your no, stuff you've got no, on no no, no. so I, you didn't you, there's no more stuff that you kind of that you edited or no you know mentally or whatever okay
2: I mean I guess the only thing I probably edited was stuff that was uh kind of visual and because I you know I watched the towers go down and I uh, I have my own shitty stories about seeing what I saw and, and, uh, um, and so I took some of that out because it's a little dramatic and, uh, not necessary for the, for the bit. Um, but, but that was just sort of self-editing for the, for the betterment of the, the mm. whole, you know, mm. it, it was, it wasn't like there was subject matter. I, sure didn't talk about
0: but that's interesting you had to you might have chosen to remove stuff because it was too dramatic yeah because at the end of the day you're not you know you're not giving a speech you're doing stand-up exactly yeah yeah well listen i can't let you go without talking a little bit about arrested development um which was i i wanted to ask how much of and and with with your other parts as well, I, I sort of get the impression from some smaller parts you've played on other shows that I love that that you've been booked for those shows to play yourself or a version of yourself, or because they know and love you. So Hank on Community or mm-hmm. Noah in Archer, and I know you're friends with H. John Benjamin. You know there are you know you have enough of a profile now that you right. are booked to be a version of you or to sort of right. I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I get the impression that some of your friends in comedy are going, oh, great, let's get David in to do this, and he can David it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Do you you see what I mean?
2: Yeah, I didn't know that was a verb, but...
0: But with with Arrested Development, given that it was so densely written, and with so much foreshadowing of punchlines and jokes that pay off whole seasons later, Mm -hmm. um, were you able to bring... Did you did you purely just bring performance and bringing the script to life? Or were you bringing your own jokes and tweaks and suggestions and stuff like that? What was it like to be in
2: that kind of creative environment? Um, initially, like uh, the pilot and the first couple episodes, first part of the first year, I riffed a lot more. And then I learned not to riff because I would just get... It, it was a waste of time and it, it was... It, because of exactly what you're describing, it's never going to make it in. Um, so much, I mean, we would shoot, I mean, it was 21 minutes, uh, you know, what went on air, 21 and a half minutes and we'd get 42 page scripts. So half of what you were doing anyway was never going to make it. So, uh, so I learned fairly quickly not to improvise anymore. It just was a waste of time. I mean, sometimes you can't help it and you Mm -hmm. do it anyway and, um, I can't. There's really nothing that I can point to outside of out of the first, like, seven or eight episodes that I think made it in. Uh, and then you just sort of stop. Um, but then in the last series, I did improvise a little bit more. Um, and they were encouraging. You know, they they were fine with it. It's just... But you don't want to waste any time because really at that point, you're not getting, you know, serious. uh Season two and three, like were so dense getting these really long scripts and it was cut to 21 and a half minutes and like you're just wasting everybody's time with your funny take on something you know (laughs)
0: so that's funny that's not dissimilar to the experience of watching it the way we described that to a show before it became bigger or I we, was we telling my friends about it was to say there's so many jokes in it you can't turn to who the, the person you're watching it with it and go I enjoyed that joke because yeah. you'll miss the next two you know what I mean and a yeah. visual and something in the background and yeah. the rest of it yeah um, was that was that the most satisfying thing that you've worked on of someone else's so that someone else's piece of writing
2: oh yeah for sure uh, it was it's it's too bad that the 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 memory of it, the actual making of it, and the memory of it is kind of sullied by the fact that um, every single episode we ever did was uh, done with this weight of are we going to get to make another one? You yeah, know? and and that is a tough way to go into work and and uh, for everybody involved. And it was like that every single show. I mean, we didn't know. Our last season, every day we'd show up. Are we doing eighteen? Are we? Are they? Mm. Are they locking down the studio? Are they going to kick us off? Are we going to get to do twenty-two? Are we going to do sixteen? Like, we just didn't know if that day was going to be our last day. And that s- spread out over, you know, months is is a shitty way to work. Outside of that, it was all great. Great cast. You know, every time Mitch was on set, it was. Uh, exciting, like, you know, Papa's here, you yeah. know. And uh, just a treat to be able to work with all those folks. It's great.
0: Was that, I mean, that's kind of, it's got to be in the running for one of the best ensemble
2: casts in any... I I was, from the beginning and to this day, just, I, I'm amazed at the casting. The casting is just, like, and so much of us were... Uh, Like people didn't know who I. I mean, like comedy nerds knew who I was, but nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew who Will was, or Tony Hale, or Michael, or Allie. I mean, everybody. Everybody was like sort of has been's, or nobody knew who they were, you know. And it was, I mean, I I can't imagine anybody else's joke. It just doesn't. Yeah, yeah, doesn't compute. Yeah, you know. Uh, Yeah, the casting on that show was just monumental you know, it's great.
0: And did that, did you experience, I mean, that, that must have brought you, like it brought you to my attention as a, as a stand-up. Did That must have had ripples for your
2: other sure, yeah. work. That's that sort of the most successful
0: yeah. Yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. Is that, what would you say then is the most satisfying work that you've done, your stand-up included? If you had to look at all of this huge breadth of stuff that you've done, what's the,
2: what's the thing that you most think nailed it? Um, I did a commercial for AOL. (laughs) Please tell me this is a true story. (laughs) Uh, That is true. It's not my proudest moment. (laughs) Yeah, I was in a gorilla suit. Ben Stiller directed it, actually. (laughs) um, um, I think think Mr. Show... um, I, I just find... It was very special. It's still... Resonates, it still, uh, um, it still holds up. And, um, you know, we did things that hadn't been done and, uh, did them well. Uh, you know, I like most of my other stuff. There, there are a few things that I've written, produced performances I've done that are clunkers, but I think that, uh, I guess that I'd say Mr. Show and, uh, um, I just did a movie that I really liked to wrote and directed a movie, but uh, Mister Show. What was the, what was the movie that you just? It's done? called Hits. Okay. Um, Has this been we, released yet? You say you just. Did. No, it was at the. We were here in um, at the Sundance Festival here in London. It it did well here. It did especially did it actually did quite well with the London audiences, but. Um, yeah, Mr. Show, I think. And finally, um,
0: what would be... Oh, I've got so much other stuff to ask, but I've got, you know, I've, I've got, you've got a life to live. <laughs> so have I. Um, what, it's um, not
2: about us. It's about the listeners right now.
0: I know. Well, it, no, they've, no. They've got shit to do. They, no, they don't. They love it. <laughs> they, they, they've got to drive to Edinburgh. That's right. what they've got to do. They love this stuff. Um...
2: That's a very specific podcast. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, people get off at a service station near Fife and talk about it. Uh, What would be your your best piece of advice to give to uh, a stand-up? Or the best advice you were given?
2: It really comes down to, and I've said this a million times, and I'm not the only one by far, but you just have to get up and do it. You can't um, daydream about how great you're going to be and what you're going to do. You have to get up there, do it. You're going to eat a lot of shit. Know that you are. That's fine. Um, and and I guess also be, I mean, I'm telling you, um, it's my advice to a young me, and I don't know how many of those are, uh, are out there. Uh, don't, you know, just be true to yourself and uh, uh, trust your, I mean, they're all trite. Cliche. Okay, it's well, i was stuff. just thinking.
0: Let me ask this in a different way. Something, something. I like. Uh, I like asking my guests is what would be written on your
2: comedy gravestone? Oh, I know exactly what it is. God. Uh, here lies David Cross. His last wish was to be cremated. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: So that was David. And you can see why in those two hours of uh, conversation, I didn't really want to cut anything. I thought that was all good stuff. I'm so grateful to David for coming on the show. Um, this episode was co-produced by Nathan Wood, who is a very valued helper of mine. He edits the show together for little more than a line on his CV and the occasional book token. Uh, the pod gremlin or pod blin for this episode was Olivia Phipps. Thank you, Olivia. Uh, and now I, uh, I need another helper to be paid in peas, I'm afraid, and, and a very specific one. I'm putting together a new website, and it's going to be a slow process over the next few months because I've just discovered analytics. Yes, crazy, the dark magic world of analytics, which I, I can find out so much about, you people, you listeners. Um, none of it about you specifically, so don't get scared if you're secretly a terrorist. But um, I, I'm learning that 45% of you, I think, are women, which is great. I, I assume there'd be a more of a male bias um maybe the women should write to me more often that sounded wrong but (laughs) but from the emails i'd assumed you were mostly blokes so it's nice to hear that uh, everyone is enjoying it so fairly equally but there's all kind of information like that available to me that i'm not making use of at the moment because i don't understand it do you live in london or bristol and fancy helping me out with understanding the murky inky black world of web analytics could you perhaps describe yourself as a user builder I only learnt that term yesterday. Um, This isn't just a web designer, I should stress. Uh, I've got a few of them in the can, some very uh, useful people helping me. But I need a specialist in metadata, taxonomic tagging and Google juice. I've made up one of those terms. If you can tell which one, you've passed the first stage. Email me, info at comedianscomedian.com with the subject line, mega nerd, and let's have a conversation. I'd really appreciate some help with this. Thanks for listening. Drop in at iTunes, give me a five-star review. If you have a moment, join in the Facebook group. You can follow me at comcompod on Twitter. Interact with me using your favourite social media and or in real life. Um, And, oh, if you wouldn't mind clicking on the Facebook page, Stuart Goldsmith Comedy. So it's facebook.com. uh, forward slash Stuart Goldsmith Comedy just click like on that I'm turning that into the new public Comedians Comedian page with the ComCom group a sort of private VIP area unless my new mega nerd tells me otherwise that's the plan for now Um, that uh, MP3 of David Cross's little final track will be available downloading in your in your stream now or you can find it at ComediansComedian.com speak to you soon I'll speak to you soon yeah I will next week Who knows? I've got a couple of people in the can and also someone else that I'm trying to get. So a bit of a surprise for next week. I'll speak to you then.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.